Stories, fables, ghostly tales. A prince has a stupid brother. So stupid that he can spend years observing a task and not learn how to do it. The prince though loves his brother, but most certainly knows his weakness and looks for other avenues to bring success to him. Along this path though our prince is corrupted by desire. Desire of dark magic. Magics unknown to him that trap him and put him on a path to near death. But also, adventure. Join me today for your fable, a short set of tales from Tibet. We have magic, murder, and monstrous marvels of spiritual gravitas, of which I know you will all enjoy. So turn the lights off and enjoy something special and unique like you, written all the way back in 1922. Enjoy. The Siddhi Kur is a strange and mysterious creature. He is so old that we cannot even guess at his age, and he has travelled so many leagues from the land that originally produced him that we really do not know how much of him is as he was, and how much of him has been changed by time and place. Dusky little boys and girls in faraway India long, long ago, were the first to listen to the stories that gathered around the figure of this Tidhi Kur. Tales of wonder and magic, which always ended with the hint of another, even better one to follow. Then from India, still in the unknown long ago, wandering tribes or perhaps occasional single travellers carried the stories into the highlands of Tibet. There they grew and flourished, to the city Kur in his mango tree with his clever wit and quaint sense of humour, and the ever-persevering Khan's son, became as familiar to Kalmak and Mongolian children as St. George and his dragon are to us. Some European travellers, hearing the tales from the people and realising their unusual qualities, their picturesqueness, their fun and adventure, collected them and brought them home. They were first published in 1866 by German scholar Bernard Julg, and it is from his pamphlet, which I won't even attempt to pronounce, <laughs> and an English translation of the same, Sagas from the Far East by R. H. Busk in 1873, that I have drawn the following stories, changing and adapting them freely to suit Occidental ethics and taste. I was first moved to put them into book form because of the interest they aroused in a certain small group of boys and girls to whom I told them, one hot, happy summer not so very long ago. The element of repetition, the distinctly human characteristics, the atmosphere of another land and strange people, and the romance of quest, these things give to the wonder tales from Tibet the appeal to the childhood of all times and all races which is their reason for having lived so long and travelled so far, and reason too for believing they will hold the interest of our modern American girls and boys. Written by Eleanor Myers Duet The Clever Prince and the Stupid Brother For all those with siblings, they can attest to having a stupid brother, perhaps. And this is how the story goes. Long years ago, there lived in the far east a prince and his brother, sons of the great Khan. The prince was a wise and clever youth, but his brother was stupid and ignorant beyond belief. 
The Khan tried in vain to have this lazy fellow educated and finally, when all else had failed, sent him to school to seven learned magicians who lived in a cave on the outskirts of his realm. There was nothing in the way of magic, either white or black, good or evil, which these seven wise men did not know. But because they had wicked, cruel hearts, they left the good alone and practiced their art only for selfish and evil purposes. They took the stupid brother because the Khan bade them to do so, and they promised to teach him all the art of magic. But inwardly, they resolved that he should learn none of it, and merely be their tool and helper. And so it was. For seven years, the stupid brother worked with the magicians, and in all that time he learned not one thing so that at the end he knew no more than at the beginning. His brother, the prince, thinking that all might not be well, went one day to the cave and stood all day long at the door, watching his brother and the seven wise men at work. And so very quick and clever he was, that at the end of the day, he had mastered no small bit of the art of magic himself, seeing, however, how things stood with his brother, and that it was useless for him to remain longer he bade him come away, and the two straightway set off together toward their home. The mind of the prince was full of the wonderful secrets of magic, which he had just learned, and he was eager to try his power and skill at the game. So at length, as they neared the palace, Brother, go you to the old stable behind the hill, and there you will find a splendid steed as white as milk. I pray you, Lead him gently to market, sell him, and bring the money to me. But remember this, on no account, let him take you near the cave of the seven magicians. Willingly, said the stupid brother, and off he set for the stable. He was too slow and dull to be really surprised at seeing a fine white horse standing unhitched in an open stall where there had been no horses before. He only thought what a great pity it would be to sell the animal as the prince had bidden him. Far better would he like to keep it for himself. At any rate, he would take a ride first and perhaps go to the cave and show his new possession off to his friends, the wise men. Scarcely had he formed this thought in his mind and leapt upon the steed's back when the animal dashed off, swiftly as the wind, down the road which led to the cave of the wizards, too late did the stupid brother remember the prince's warning to avoid that place of all others. He could not turn the horse to right or left or slacken his speed until at length he stopped on his own accord right in front of the door of the cave. The lad got down and tried to turn the horse's head and lead him home. He coaxed and scolded and even beat and kicked the poor beast, but all to no avail. Then... Looking up, he spied the seven magicians standing in a row and smiling at him. It is useless. You will never get that horse beyond our gate, so you might as well sell him to us. Very well, said the stupid brother, sulkily, giving a final kick. How much will you give me for him? Now, the magicians knew that this was no ordinary horse, but in reality, the prince who had changed himself thus in order to test his skill in magic. By their charms and spells, they had drawn him straight to their cave. 
for they were not at all pleased to find he had learned the secret of their magic, and now they were minded to destroy him if they could. So they bargained with the stupid brother for the horse, paid him a good price, and sent him away, never dreaming that he was in reality, leaving the prince behind him. Alas, now is my last hour come. By all the hidden powers of magic, I wish that some living creature would come by into which I could transform myself and so escape. Before the cave of the magicians flowed a brook, and the prince had no sooner formed this wish in his heart than a tiny fish came swimming by. Quick as a flash, the great white steed disappeared, for the prince had changed himself into the little minnow and was swimming rapidly away. The magicians saw their prey disappearing, and immediately transformed themselves into seven larger fish and gave chase. In and out among the shallows and deep pools they flashed, the little fish and the seven great ones after it, on and on and ever the great fish gained upon the little one, until the foremost of the seven could almost seize it in his mouth. Alack a day! Now indeed is my last hour come. By all the power of magic spells I wish that some living creature would come by into which I could transform myself and so escape. He had scarcely uttered this wish to himself, when a white bird flew low over the brook, and in a flash the minnow was gone, and the prince was flying swiftly over the fields in the form of a white dove. But he was none too quick, for the seven magicians had become seven great hawks and were circling over him. The prince sped on like the wind over hills and valleys, on and on until at length, quite out of breath and spent, he came to a tall, shining mountain. In the heart of this mountain was a cave wherein dwelt a hermit, a wise and good man, whose name was Nagaguna. To this refuge the prince now sped, and the hawks were almost upon him when he flew against the rough wooden door of the cave and beat his wings wildly upon it. Nagaguna opened it. The dove flew in and fell exhausted upon the floor. What is the matter, little creature? said the hermit, picking up the white bird and holding him gently in his hands. I am pursued, gasped the prince. My life is in great danger. I pray to you, good master, hear me, and do what I bid you, that my life may be saved. He paused to take a breath, and in that moment there came a knocking at the door of the cave, which had swung to after the prince had entered. Even now, continued the prince. There stand seven men without, clothed in white. Before you open the door to them, let me change myself into the largest bead in that chaplet which you wear around your neck. When they come in, they will ask you for it. Give them the beads. But before you do so, break the string on which they are strung, so that they will fall to the ground. If you do this, I can do the rest by my power of magic. Meanwhile, the knocking upon the door grew louder and louder, and so hastily, promising to do so as the prince had said, Nagaguna opened it. Without stood seven men with white hair and long white cotton robes. Very old and wise they looked, but their eyes were wicked. What would you, sirs? said Nagaguna. They stepped into the cave and looked sharply around, spied the chapel of beads about the hermit's neck. The white dove, of course, had vanished by this time. I pray you, 
said the foremost of the seven men. Let us have the chaplet that hangs about your neck. We have long heard the fame of you, have come from afar to see you, and would greatly like to carry away a token from you. Gladly will I give it to you, said the hermit, but in slipping the chaplet from his neck, he managed to break the string, and the beads went clattering to the floor, all but the largest one, which still clung to the string, and all the little beads became worms, and wriggled upon the ground, and the seven magicians changed themselves into seven large fowls, and began pecking at the worms, until they were all eaten up. Then, at length, the largest bead fell, and scarcely had it touched the earth, before it became a youth, the prince himself, who stood straight, tall and fair, with a staff in his hands. With this he slew the seven fowls quickly, one by one, and cast them out of the cave, where they became the dead bodies of the seven wicked magicians. Then he turned back, weary and exhausted, into the cave. But Nagaguna looked upon him coldly, and with displeasure. You have done evil, my son, for you have taken life, even the lives of seven men, and it will not easily be forgiven you. The prince bowed his head humbly before Nagaguna. Truly, I did not wish the death of these men, but they wickedly sought my life. Only to defend myself from a like fate did I lift my hand to slay another. Even so, and well I know your heart is not evil, and that only because you knew of no better way to defend yourself did you resort to barbarous killing. But my knowledge, my son, are all good things accomplished, all wrong ones avoided, had your knowledge been perfect you would not have found it necessary to take the life of any living creature, even in self-defense. Then, Father, let me stay with you and learn true wisdom. I am sorry for this wrong, done in ignorance, and any task, no matter how hard, which you want me to perform, I will do faithfully to show my true repentance. Well said. And Nagaguna smiled upon the prince. If you keep this spirit of humility within you, when the time comes for you to rule this land, you will be a wise and good king, and your people will be happy and prosperous beneath your sway. Come now, I will tell you a task worthy, a brave man's strength and skill, and when you shall have accomplished it, you shall dwell with me and learn wisdom until it is time for you to be king over your people. The prince and the hermit forthwith sat down side by side upon the rough floor of the cave, for it is quite bare of furnishings, and Nagaguna told of the great work which the prince was to do. There is, in a very far country, a great creature called the Sidekur. Very strange he is, being gold from his waist up, emerald from his waist down, with a head that looked like mother of pearl, and the shining crown upon it. The Sidekur is a creature of magic, good magic, and the land wherein he is shall be blessed with knowledge, wealth, and long life. Now, if you can capture the Sidekur and bring him to me, we will place him in a cool grove here upon the shining mountain, and then our people in the valley 
your people and my people will be mightily blessed above all others. They shall have gold in abundance, and what is far better, they shall have a great store of wisdom and knowledge and long life in which to use it. That is indeed a noble task, and with great joy will I undertake it. Only tell me how I may reach the Siddhakur, and how he may be captured. Mark well my words, and I will tell you all. For an hour or more they talked, and Nagaguna told the prince how we should go to find the Siddhakur, of all the dangers he would meet by the way and how he should overcome them. And the prince plied him with many questions, and put away carefully in his mind all the directions and warnings that were given him. At length the master arose and, going into a dark recess of the cave, brought forth an axe, a sack, a cord, and a basket. These he spread out before the prince. In this basket, said he, handing it to the lad, are the magical barley corns which you will use as I have directed you, and also a cake which grows not less not matter how much you eat of it. The cake will keep you from hunger, and the barley corns will keep you from fear. Then, picking up the axe, the sack, and the cord, he continued, When at length you have found the Siddhikur, do not fail to tell him that this is the magic axe, White Moon, that this sack is the marvelous sack of many colors, in which though it appears so small, there is space to stow away a hundred creatures, and that, finally, this is the cord of a hundred threads, each one different in hue, and each one strong enough to bind and hold the mightiest ox. When you have shown him all these things, he will yield himself quietly to you. Arise then, my son, and start upon your way, and peace and good fortune attend you. The prince arose, his heart high with courage, and, slinging the sack, cord, and axe over his shoulder, the basket on his arm, he turned to bid Nagaguna farewell. One more thing, and this is more important than all else that I have told you. When once you have got the Sideku upon your back, and returning to me, remember, open not your lips nor say one word for any cause, whatever, until you have reached the door of my cave and have given the Siddhikor into my keeping. Promising to remember this above all else, the prince bade goodbye to Nagaguna, receiving his blessing again and set forth with a quick step and a light heart upon his great adventure. The Prince and the Siddhikor Northward went the prince, northward in a straight line as the crow flies. Though the way was hard and rough, and many times he could find no shelter from storm and night, at length, when he had travelled a hundred miles, he came to a valley deep and dark and mysterious. This, he knew, was the spot where Negaguna had warned him he would meet with his first adventure. Gripping his sack, axe, cord, and basket with a firm hand, he climbed down the rocky sides, though it grew ever darker and darker as he descended. The loose stone slipped from beneath his feet, and a great roaring sound filled his ears as he neared the bottom, where a muddy river rushed along. At last he reached the bank of this stream and stood there. Wondering at the noise and rush of it, and at the strange half-darkness that surrounded him, suddenly the noise grew greater, 
and from the stream, the banks of the ravine, and seemingly from the air itself appeared great ghostly forms, very tall and fierce, and they rushed upon the prince as though to kill him. These are the ghosts of giants who lived long ages ago, thought the lad, remembering Nagaguna's words. I must not fear them. And covering his eyes with his sleeve, he scattered a few grains of the magic barley corn in the air and waited, listening. The strange, ghostly sounds grew less, and even the roar and rush of the torrent seemed to become more distant. For some little time, the prince waited, with his sleeve across his eyes, and when the noise had grown quite faint and indistinct, he looked around him. No longer was he standing at the bottom of the dark valley, with the muddy river rushing beside him. To his astonishment, he found himself instead on the top of a hill on the opposite side of it. The sunlight was bright and warm upon him, and an open meadowland sloped gently away before him. Casting one look down into the depths at the muddy, horrible stream far below, he turned his back upon it with a sigh of relief. Oh, there is one adventure safely past said he to himself and trudged onward. Again there was a long journey, and sometimes the way was rough and hard, and sometimes it was pleasant and easy. But northward still it lay in a straight line, and the prince was weary enough when he had gone another hundred miles and had come to the second stage of his adventure. He had reached a broad meadow full of tall, lank grass, with a little stream winding through the centre of it. On the bank of this quiet meadow brook, he stood and gazed around, wondering, for the sunlight so bright a moment ago seemed to be fading. The soft babbling of the water grew suddenly loud and harsh, the air dark and murky, and there darted from the tall, rank grass on every side a throng of strange, ghostly figures. Very small they were and dim and vague, but their faces were ugly, and they swarmed around the prince in countless numbers as if they would cover and overwhelm him. He bent his head and gasped for breath, muttering to himself, These must be they of whom Nagaguna told me, the ghosts of wicked dwarves who lived and died long years ago. He covered his eyes with his sleeve and cast the magic barley corn in the air, then waited, listening. The noise of the stream died down, and the sound of the rushing ghostly forms ceased, and when the prince looked about him again he found himself on the other side, of the little winding stream, with the sunlight pouring down upon him, and the tall grass waving at his feet. Oh, there is my second adventure safely past, thought he, and turning his back upon the meadow and brook, he journeyed on. Northward he travelled still, and if the way had been hard before, it was ten times harder now. Over rugged crags the prince scrambled, across bare deserts, where there was no water and no rest for his burning feet, only sand. Sand, sand and tiresome wind. On and on he went, until at last another hundred miles had been left behind him, and he saw lying just ahead a beautiful garden. As the prince entered it, he thought that never before had he seen anything half so lovely. Strange, brilliant flowers grew in rich profusion on all sides, filling the air with a soft, sweet fragrance. Birds with bright plumage flashed by, and the sound of their incessant sweet singing mingled with the splash of water in an unseen fountain. 
The prince loitered along the path, delighted, drinking in eagerly all the beauty of sight and sound and scent. At length, turning a corner, he came upon the fountain sparkling in the sun. Crystal clear it was and very beautiful, and beside it was a marble bench looking cool and restful. The prince sank down upon it, for he felt suddenly very weary. But scarcely had he seated himself before the sunlight disappeared and a strange half-darkness covered him. The sound of the splashing water grew louder, but it was very pleasant to hear, and mingled with it was a whispering and pattering as of small voices and tiny feet, and a brushing as of garments against the bushes. He looked around him and then stood up the better to see. From behind every flower and bush danced forth a little form. Shimmery and indistinct, but beautiful beyond belief. Oh, you lovely, lovely creatures. But I must not look at you, for truly you must be they of whom the Master told me, the ghosts of little children who lived and died long years ago and were forgotten. Slowly and reluctantly the prince, covering his eyes with his sleeve, cast the magic barley corn in the air and waited. The little silken sounds ceased. The splash of the water grew softer, and when he looked about him again he found himself standing on the other side of the fountain, with a garden behind him and a cool shady grove in front of him. And by a tree at the entrance of the grove, looking at him, stood the Sidi Kerr. The prince knew him at once by the shining gold and the emerald green of his body, by his head which looked like mother of pearl, and by the fair gold crown upon it. And as he was looking at him, the Siddiqur turned and fled, and the prince ran after him. Deep into the grove they sped, this way and that, and a long chase they had of it, until at last the Siddiqur reached the middle of the grove where stood his favorite mango tree, and before the prince could touch him, he had climbed up to the very top of it, and there he sat, looking down and laughing. The prince waited only to catch his breath, and then, seizing his axe, he raised it high above his shoulder, exclaiming, Oh, Sidhur, come down! Nagaguna the hermit has need of you! Come down, I pray you, or with my magic axe, white moon, I will fill your mango tree! Nay, do not so! cried the Sidhur, gazing in terror at the uplifted axe. Do not cut down my mango tree with the terrible white moon. Much rather would I descend to you. Come then quickly! said the prince, laying aside his axe and picking up the second cord. On seeing these, the Siddhikur hastily climbing down from the tree and stood beside the prince, trembling. See now, continued the lad, holding the sack wide open. Resistance is useless, for here I have the magic sack of many colors in which, though it looks so small, it is space to stow you away and a hundred creatures. You shall ride in it upon my back and the neck of it shall be tied around your neck with this magic cord of a hundred threads, each of a different kind, and each strong enough to bind an ox. Be content then, come with me, and you shall dwell happily in a cool grove on the shining mountain beside the good Nagaguna. The Siddhikur sighed deeply. Oh, resistance is indeed vain. Since you have the axe, the sack, and the cord, so take me on your back, and let us be about our way. For he who cannot mend his fortunes should make the best of them. The prince was overjoyed 
that his adventures should be thus accomplished so easily, and without more ado he settled the Sidakur comfortably in the sack, tied the mouth of it with a cord of a hundred threads, balanced upon his back, and picking up the axe, White Moon, started on his homeward journey. Very proud he felt, and very well satisfied. He ate of the magic cake which grew not less, and being much refreshed, he walked bravely along. Though the way was twice as hard as it had been before, owing to the heavy burden on his back, after they had proceeded a long way in silence, the Sidekur spoke. Of a truth, the way is long and I grew weary. I pray you, Prince, tell me now a tale, that the hours may seem the shorter to us both. But the Prince... Remembering how Magaguna had bade him above all else not to open his lips on the homeward way, merely shook his head and said nothing. Oh, the prince is wise beyond his years. He has learned the lesson of silence. Keep, then, your thoughts to yourself. But if you are minded to listen, I will tell you a story, a wonder tale which will make the time pass quickly and pleasantly. Only nod your head if you are willing, and I will begin. Now the prince was very weary, and the hours seemed long indeed. Surely there can be no harm in merely listening, and perhaps the Sidekur can tell a wonderful tale which it will be pleasant and profitable to hear. So he nodded assent, and the Sidekur straight away began. And next episode, I'll continue the story, which will be Tale 1, The White Bird's Wife. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. Sidekur, half Mother of Pearl and the other of Pure Emerald. What an image to conjure up. I wonder what tale our Sidekur is conjuring up for our prince, and is anyone else bothered by the fact that our main character was happily going to chop a mango tree down? One that Sidi Kerr loved. Something tells me though that the Sidi Kerr will return to his home place because that mango tree is still standing. I guess we'll find out, folks. I want to thank my miraculous Odenite Tea Titan, my magnanimous Maya, Crystalline Conjure. Three crystals made of pure magnium surround a small hut in the forest of Cleos. No one has ever entered the house, and those that leave are unstoppable. They move with such purpose and with such force that trees bend and flex in their wake. They say a witch and golem maker live there, creating crystalline beings to fetch their resources, tools, and all their desires. Not much more is known, but all those that do lay a hand on that small hut also never return. Whole that is. But some are seen walking, aimlessly around the hut, watchers it seems, for a secret abode. My white tea warlord, Lesosaurus Rex, Puncture Pediot. Three stones of Pediot are used by the sages of Inada, and are the only three stones in their lands to create exact duplicates of whatever item they touch. They are one for one identical, and create copies actually superior to their originals in that all erroneous attributes are culled and existing strengths enhanced. The Pediot Stones, known for their legendary power, teleport and move around the world, and are one of the universe's enigmas and providing them with unlimited duplicative power. And my white tea warlord, Paige Kramer, 
Snapper draws stones. Stones that crackle with power, earthen electricity, low stones with the mythical propensity to crack mountains in twain, sunder rivers into valleys. Snapper draws stones glow purple under the moonlight and are incredulously volatile. When handling these stones of destruction, be certain you do not breathe it directly on them or drop a single droplet of moisture on its surface. Otherwise, it will be the last thing you see and the last thing anything else sees for miles. Now for my amazing Earl Grey Enforcers. I'm lucky to have Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Affili, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, and Selstra. And my remaining supporters, Catherine Mason and Sunshine Days. Thank you all for listening, you loveliest of people. Now, write your story, share your tale, make it creepy to make me pale. But remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine, or the tingle that makes you smile from a plotline that's just fine. That's the magic of storytelling. It really is divine. You took your time to listen, and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet.